Well, good morning, church family, to those of you online, to those of you here in the sanctuary, down in the fellowship hall. It's great to have you joining us this morning. Last week, uh, if you tuned in, Richard Pratt preached an excellent sermon. I always love listening to him as he makes much of the Word of God and much of Jesus and uh, does so in such a challenging way. Uh, And if you've uh, listened to the announcements, you'll know that Holy Week is coming up in just a few short weeks, and so we only have uh, two more Sundays left in our sermon series on Acts. Today, in a moment, we'll be in Acts chapter 17, and then next week, Dr. Paul Jeanne will be here, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 27 as we see um, Paul take uh, the gospel to the ends of the earth, uh, to Rome as he perseveres to the very end. Some of you are thinking, that's a big jump to go from chapter 17 to chapter 27. Uh, The reason we're doing that is uh, those 10 chapters really cover uh, Paul's third missionary journey. And we've talked a lot about already several of those similar themes from his first and second missionary journey. And actually, after Easter, we're going to come back uh, to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to do a case study on one of the churches that Paul planted uh, at Ephesus. We're going to be uh, taking several months to walk through the book of Ephesians together. And so chapter 17 this week, chapter uh, 27 next week, Holy Week, and then we'll come back to Acts 19 and, and walk through Ephesians together as a church family. Now, today, uh, as we look at chapter 17, this is really a a fascinating exchange because it's between one of history's most influential people, Paul, and it's also uh, an, an exchange as he engages one of history's most influential cities, Athens, as well. And so uh, this is a model um, for how we can engage our city because there's a lot of similarities uh, between um, Athens and and even Washington, D.C. today. This was um, a city that was highly educated but largely uh, biblically illiterate. Uh, It was hypersexualized. It was multi-ethnic. And it was a very spiritually diverse city. Uh, One commentator said in the city of Athens, it was easier to find a God than to find a person. And so uh, this is Paul in that city. um, And this is how he engages and evangelizes uh, the city of Athens. So follow along with me uh, in your Bibles as I read, if you have them. We're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. After that, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in together. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that in these moments that you would give us a love for our city, that you would provoke us within in the same way that your spirit provoked Paul. We ask that you would show us that you exist and in you we find everything that we are seeking, that we do not pray to an unknown God, but rather a known God who reveals himself in creation, providence, salvation, and today through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last Sunday night, many of you probably tuned in to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's interview with Oprah. Actually, over 17 million of you did, which was the biggest audience for any non-sports program. Why are we so interested in that? Perhaps it's because we've all been locked in our homes watching The Crown. Maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, but maybe it's just because we're so invested in their story and we're curious about the life that they left behind. And so the whole world is paying attention. Now, as we've been walking through Acts, the Apostle Paul wasn't a royal being interviewed by Oprah, but his story of leaving his previous life, it generated quite a response and a large audience everywhere that he went if you just flick back a few chapters, we'd see in the city of Antioch in chapter 13, he was expelled from the city. Uh, you go over to the next chapter in chapter 14 in Lystrum, he was 
stoned, okay? Uh, in Acts 16, in Philippi, he was beaten and jailed, okay? And then in chapter 17, he's like, hey, let's go over to Thessalonica. And then there, he caused a riot. And then they're like, all right, let's take you over to Berea. And things are going okay in Berea until the agitators from Thessalonica show up. And then again, he's forced out of town. And that's why he's down in Athens at this point. I'm thinking that guy's having a bad time as a pastor, but the gospel is going forth. And this is how the gospel multiplies and goes forth and eventually overtakes actually the Greco-Roman world. It's swept up in Christianity. And our text today focuses on what happened in this global city of Athens. And so I want us to see three things today. I want us to see three things that will help us engage even our city. I want us to look at Paul's heart. I want us to look at Paul's strategy. And then finally, I want us to look at the words of Paul. What did he have to say uh, to this global city? So let's first consider the heart of Paul for the city. So in verse 16, we see that he's in Athens while he's waiting for his friends to show up. And all of you who are so educated in this city, you don't need me to tell you about the city of Athens, but let me just jog your memory for a moment. You may remember that Athens at the time had been conquered by the Romans, but it was still one of the leading artistic, intellectual, athletic, cultural cities of its time. Remember that Athens was the place of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, the Parthenon. This is where there were great statesmen, philosophers, engineers, historians, poets, painters, and architects. And as Paul is in this city, taking a break from being run out of the town of Berea, he could have been tempted to do a lot of things at this time. He could have just hid out in his hotel room in this moment. He could have just taken a break, and it's certainly fine to take a rest. It's also understandable, right, if Paul would have looked out at the city of Athens and just concluded, you know what? This city is too hostile, it's too pagan, it's too materialistic to be interested in the gospel and Jesus, and so I'm just going to kind of sit right here and pray for a little while. It also would have been understandable for Paul to be like, wow, I'm, 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 in, I'm in Athens, I, I just want to be a tourist, right? He, he could have walked around the city just marveling at it, like an artist absorbed in its beauty, a politician caught up in the memory of Pericles, or a philosopher studying Plato, or a business looking out at the thriving harbor, just imagining all of his pitches for Shark Tank. But instead... <laughs> Paul looked on this great city and he saw the state of their souls. He didn't see only what this city had, but he looked at this city and he saw what they lacked. He saw this beautiful, cultural, global city, and at the same time, he had a broken heart over those who did not know his gracious God and his Savior, Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth. And we don't have to imagine what Paul felt because we're told what he felt. In verse 16, it says that he was provoked within. He was provoked within. You know, that can be a little hard to understand because that's a very complex and intense emotion. 
to, to be provoked is to feel something very deeply. Um, it's sort of a, a complex love, and, and I think we can understand that. When we see someone that we love, perhaps a child, perhaps a friend, perhaps a parent, ravaged by some addiction, we don't respond with benign indifference, right? But we're provoked from within because both our anger and our love are stirred for that person as we see their life being ravaged by something. And that's what Paul feels as he looks out on a city. He is provoked with both anger and love, with both concern and compassion when he sees this beautiful city full of idols. It's hard to believe, but um, my wife and I moved here in 2012. We've been here for over eight years now. And when we moved here, we were wisely told by several pastors and others who had been in this city a lot longer and said, if you're going to minister here effectively, you have to recognize where you live. You live in a global city. But as you recognize where you live, you can't be overly intimidated or enamored by it uh, unless uh, you won't be effective in ministering to it. And I can tell you they were right. You guys are an impressive bunch. You're very intimidating. And this is an incredibly beautiful city. And, and I love when we get visitors. We haven't had many in a year, right? But before that, when friends and family would show up, we, we love showing them this city. It truly is amazing, isn't it? All of our museums, all of the, the hills and the parks and the people and, and the food, it's just, it's an amazing city, is it not? And it's so easy uh, to just enjoy living here without being burdened for the people of our city. And as much as we enjoy living here, we need to consider are we being provoked within for the people who live here who don't know our Savior, Jesus? Are we feeling as Paul felt? Are we being stirred in our inner being in order to be effective gospel ambassadors to our beautiful city? Are we so taken with the beauty of the gospel are we so enamored by Jesus Christ that we are neither overly or unnecessarily intimidated by the people of this great city? John Stott, whose commentary we've used throughout this sermon series, he, he writes this about this passage. He says, if you're not filled with indignation, you will not have the courage to do what Paul did. If you are only filled with indignation, though, you won't have the gentleness. You won't be able to give people the impression that you care about them. You won't be able to get into their questions. You won't be able to understand them. They won't feel respected. They'll turn you right off. What he's saying there is we have to be righteously indignant about seeing um, the idols in our culture that also exist in our heart, but at the same time, we also have to have compassion. We need concern 
and compassion? Perhaps that's a good question to discuss for those of you who are in community groups. Which of those do you lean more towards? Are you just provoked by our city and always just angry at all of the idols? Or are you only gentle and compassionate and not ever concerned or provoked? Which of those do you have a tendency to place more weight on? Because as, as John Stott says in his commentary, we, we need to do both in order to be effective. We must have righteous indignation, holy passion, holy courage, and holy jealousy. And we also have to have brokenhearted gentleness to be effective. That will keep us from being cowardly. That will keep us from being obnoxious. It will keep our public faith being full of concern and compassion. Presbyterians, I don't want you to miss this, right? We love Paul's theology, don't we? We, we love to talk about Paul's theology. But if we are going to understand Paul's theology, we can't miss Paul's heart as well, right? The love that he has for the people in these cities throughout Asia and Europe. So like Paul, we want to have his hearts, but we also can learn something about his strategy of how he engaged in the city. So that's point two, the strategy of Paul with the city. And I really want to pull that from verses 17 through 20. Now, Paul's strategy for engaging the city was to go into three venues or maybe two venues with 2A and 2B and to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel in each of these venues. Now, the first place that he went is in verse 17, and it tells us that Paul went to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue is where people were biblically literate, they were those who were familiar with Moses, Abraham, the ceremonial, and the civil laws. And I think Paul went there for both theological and practical reasons. Theological reasons, I think he went there first because the Jews were God's covenant people. And God had chosen them to be a light to the nations. But I think he also went there for practical reasons because they already had a similar worldview. They were already biblically literate. And we're not told in chapter 17 specifically what he taught in the synagogue, but we don't have to guess because we can look back earlier when he was in Thessalonica in the synagogue and what did he preach there? In verse three, it says, he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's preaching to people who are religious, but are non-Christians. In other words, he's preaching to the pews, right? One of the things that we have to remember as a church family is just because we attend religious services, just because we are a part of this church family, doesn't necessarily mean that we understand and embrace grace, that we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's one of the reasons why we continue to proclaim Christ and him crucified in every one of our ministries, right? It doesn't matter. We're going to talk about a lot of things 
uh, that pertain to life. We're going to teach everything that Scripture commands, but in our student ministry and in our children's ministry, in our young adult ministry, in our senior saints ministry, you know what's going to be there? We are going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Paul's strategy was to make sure that the gospel was preached even to the religious. But the second place that he went, notice in verse 17, he also went to the marketplace. Now, when we hear marketplace, what are we tempted to think of? Well, immediately, I think of Tyson's. And so is this the equivalent of going down to Tyson's Galleria and standing up in front of Shake Shack and preaching? Which, by the way, I think Shake Shack is overrated, okay? But I'm a five guys, you know. I don't get in and out either. I know a lot of people like in and out. Sorry, West Coast folks. Love you guys. But maybe it's just because I like D.C., but five guys, that's where it's at. <laughs> the marketplace in Athens was so much more than Tyson's Galleria. It was the place where ideas were exchanged where news was gathered and business was conducted. Uh, one commentator put it this way. He said, on or just off the marketplace were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. Everybody was there because there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't whatever else I'm not familiar with now that I'm old. <laughs> but you had artists and businessmen and officials and media and investors and philosophers debating in one place in a public space. Now, I think this is a harder place for Paul to go, right? Because it's not religious. But he recognizes this, that evangelism can't just take place in the church. We have to go where people are, even more today than 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, as, as one preacher said, I love the movie Filled of Dreams, but it's a terrible evangelism strategy. If you build it, they will not come. <laughs> we have to take the gospel to where the people are in the marketplace and in the neighborhoods. And let's be honest, it's harder to do that. It's harder to do that because it's riskier. We can face more discrimination. There's more awkwardness. And there may even be conflict in our neighbors, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces as you try to advance your career, but we have to go where the people are and to take the gospel to them. Now, notice there's a third venue or a 2B sort of venue in verse 19. Um, you know, we're sort of familiar with synagogue. We're sort of familiar, familiar with marketplace. Maybe some of you are familiar with the Areopagus from world history, but what is this place? Th this was a hill uh, it was a hill where a court of elite thinkers or philosophers met. Uh, it was called the Council of Athens. This was the same court that had tried Socrates earlier. Um, it's not hard to imagine, right? Because we have a hill in our city, and it would be like gathering the faculties of Princeton and Harvard and Yale and Tennessee to debate the ideas of the day. 
Some of you got that. Some of you, I'm from Tennessee. Bill went to Princeton, and we know which one of those has a better academic reputation. (laughs) But Paul is now addressing people who don't know Moses. They've never read the Old Testament, really. They're polytheists with a different worldview. And he mentions specifically two of these worldviews, right? He mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, Let me just try to compress a little bit about how the Epicureans thought and the Stoics thought, because both of these worldviews are still rampant in our culture today. Uh, The Epicureans, to be overly simplified, would be kind of like hedonist, and the Stoics would be pragmatist. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Epicureans believe that the gods were distanced and removed. They were sort of like relativists. Uh, They were determined to find as much pleasure as possible and to avoid as much pain as they could. Their slogan could have been, if it feels good, do it. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Now, the Stoics, they were pantheists. They believed that God could be found everywhere, kind of like the force in Star Wars, okay? And they stressed self-sufficiency, obedience, and duty to be good moralist, maybe like Spock in Star Trek. And calm down, all you science fiction fans. I know I just blended Star Trek and Star Wars. Don't send me any emails. <laughs> but their slogan or their motto would have been, just be a good, strong person, keep a stiff upper lip, and do what you ought to do. You see how there's so much in common with their city and our city now. And we do want to look in a moment of how Paul addressed these worldviews. But before we move on to that third point, I do want you to pay attention to the strategy of Paul. He speaks the gospel. He speaks gracious truth, not only to the church, but in the marketplace and in the academy and in the government. And friends, we need to do the same today. It doesn't mean that we have to become street preachers with bullhorns, but it does mean that our faith needs to be public, that we can't just limit Jesus to our private world or our inner life, but that out in public with our neighbors and with our coworkers, it's okay to publicly identify as a Christian. Jesus must be more than a Sunday thing for all of us. And if we understand the gospel, like Abraham Kuyper taught, it will affect every square inch of our life, including the public square. We need to ask ourselves, do our friends even know that we love Jesus and we love them in the context of everyday life? That's what it means to have a public faith and to mimic the strategy of Paul. Well, in verse 18, we see and we hear what they thought of Paul. They call him a babbler. Uh, It was a derogatory term. It was this idea of a bird chewing up seeds and then spitting them out, basically someone who doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so they ask him to clarify. And so we're given his words that he delivered to those at the Areopagus. And that's the last and final point, the words of Paul 
to the city. And we have those in verses 22 through 31. Now, I timed it, and it takes about two minutes to read this. But Paul surely said more at the Areopagus. It's, it's known to go on for hours and hours. And so basically, we have an outline or the Cliff Notes version of what Paul communicated to those who were at Areopagus. And in short, I'll even shorten what Paul said. This is what he did. He was full of both grace and truth. He was full of both grace and truth or love and truth. In verses 20 through 23, he is just incredibly respectful and winsome, seeking to find commonalities with the people there. He begins with really, you know, the the Socratic method. He starts with a question, and he begins with points of agreement. He, He could, you know, be described as someone displaying exceptional relational wisdom as he related to their worldview. He discerned their emotions and their interest, and he adjusted his strategies and his words, not the gospel, but he adjusted his strategies and his methods to build trust and to forge seemingly impossible agreements. He did this skillfully. He was full of grace and truth. Now, the truth we see in verses 24 through 31. He is very honest, and he is very direct, and it brings their worldview into conflict with the biblical worldview. And Paul proclaimed to them, he says, God created us. He transcends us. He sustains us. He parents us, and he satisfies us. He loves us, and one day he will also judge us. And he says, we don't just have an unknown God. We have a personal God. And we don't just live in an accidental world, but we live in a world that clearly reveals the signature of God. And that God is bigger than you and me. And we live in a world that is so intricately designed that it couldn't be an accident. And because he made us in his image, Instead of us making him in our image, we treat everyone with dignity and respect, and we have a basis for pursuing justice and fighting against evil. And friends, you want pleasure. You want satisfaction. We are made to be in a soul-satisfying relationship with the creator of heaven and earth, and it is only in Jesus Christ where we will find our ultimate joy, our ultimate peace, our ultimate pleasure. And friends, he has been delaying his justice to give us time to repent and to return to God. And even though God is our creator, And even though we are headed towards judgment, friends, if we repent, he's not our judge, but he's our savior. He's our savior. He says, friends, you are worshiping the wrong thing or the wrong person, and God offers something, specifically someone who is infinitely better than anything you have and more than you could imagine. That's his message to the city of Athens. So what have we seen in Acts 17? We've seen Paul's heart 
It was indignant and compassionate, concerned and compassionate. His strategy was to be public with his faith. And then he shared words full of grace and truth. In short, Paul's living out the gospel. He's imitating Jesus. What do we know about the gospel? Well, this same word that Paul being provoked is the same word used of God throughout the Old Testament when God looks at creation. Places like in Isaiah 65 where God says, I spread out my hands and all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. God basically says, as one preacher put it, I love you, I made you, I created you, I designed you, I made you for myself, and yet you're giving yourself to other things. And you're building your life on other things that will not satisfy you. And as a result, these things are too small for your soul. And so they're emptying you of your life. They're draining you and they're enslaving you. And I love you, but I lost you. And I love you too much to let you destroy yourself. So I'm sending my son to rescue and redeem you from slavery. I'm coming to win you back. And on the cross, that's what Jesus did, right? The ultimate expression of both concern and compassion. He was concerned enough to be crucified for us, but he was compassionate enough that he was glad to do it. When he saw our idolatry, he was provoked. And friends, oh friends, when we see him doing that, for us. That changes us. That's how grace changes us. When we see him responding, being provoked to our idols and reaching out in love and dying for us, when we understand that grace, that enables us to extend grace to our city. It transforms the way that we relate. It frees us so that we're no longer more consumed by human royals, but we're more concerned by heavenly royals. We don't become intimidated by the impressive people here because we know the king of the universe and we know that in him we live and move and have our being and we have freedom and our identity is wrapped up in him. And so we're free to pursue godly ambition, but it doesn't become an idol of power. Friends, we know this city well, do we not? We, we like this city because we resonate with this city. Many of the same idols that our friends have are the same idols that we have. And it's just that grace is transforming those idols in our own hearts. And we become other, we become fellow idolaters who have told other idolaters where we can find something more satisfying and worth serving and glorifying and making much of in this world. May that be true of all of us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this challenging text, for the, for the model of both Paul and the model of Jesus, and seeing their heart and their love for their cities and for their world. 
for their willingness to lay down their life, to sacrifice. Father, we pray that we would see the beauty of Jesus in such a way that we would lay down our empty pursuits, that we would follow you, that we would give you our hearts, our affections, our minds. Everything that we have is yours. Father, help us to find our soul-satisfying delight, pleasure, and joy in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.